Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10, we're looking at 31 verses this morning, but 26 of them, actually 27 of them are names. So just so you know, we're not taking off too much, I don't think. Uh, I intended to cover the whole chapter, um, but realize that might have been more than I could handle in a sermon, so um, at least for this passage. We do come to a challenging passage. It's not one that you hear preached about often, right? This idea of making commitments. Um, and on the surface, it might appear that the Western mindset is, is sort of commitment phobic, uh, that, that we shy away from making commitments. But I think most people recognize the value of making an agreement to keep their most important goals. Uh, there are a few successful apps that I've come across as I search to download various apps. One of the, those that I've used in the past was called Gym Pact or BeMinder. Both of them penalize you when, uh, with a fine when you fail to keep your goals. Gym Pact, if you fail to go to the gym. Now, they don't know what you're doing when you're there. So, you know, you could just show up, be in the parking lot, check in on Gym Pact and head back home. But, you know... They're, they're figuring you, you wouldn't want to waste the time just to do that. And what they do is they take the pool of all the people that they find and they, and they redistribute it to those who successfully kept their agreement. Now, this isn't um, lucrative. It's not some, I don't know of anyone who's you know, making a living off of being like a gym pack shark. Um, but it is, it is something where they said, I, I, I failed over and over to keep this commitment that I make to myself every new year, to, to be a new person physically. And so I need something a little more serious. I need to make a commitment here that's gonna have some weight behind it, right? That's gonna penalize me if I fail or reward me if I'm successful. In fact, the penalty is generally more, um, has a greater impact on us than, than the reward typically. Uh, that's just what the research has shown. So BeMinder was the other app, and they don't do any rewards. It's just a penalty. You just commit. You put $100 on the line, and if you lose, they, they gladly take it from you. Um, so all that to say, the Israelites here have just confessed their repeated rebellion, their constant failure right, to the covenant agreement that they had made, the 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 failure of their ancestors. They've confessed that, and then they've acknowledged that they themselves have received that, those same tendencies. They continue to fall under the same pattern of rebellion. So what could they do to break the cycle? Well, ultimately, it was God's covenant faithfulness. That's what they prayed about in the previous chapter. Right? They just they reminded themselves of God's covenant faithfulness, and then they plead for him to continue to be faithful. And they acknowledge their sinful rebellion and their tendency to continue to repeat in that. But it was God's covenant faithfulness that gave them the strength and the courage to recommit themselves to his commandments. And so in this passage, we'll see they follow up that prayer of confession with a, an agreement, a sealed agreement where they 
they seal their commitment in writing and in the company of the whole community. So they've, they're still all gathered together. They've confessed their sin. They've heard the, the word of God read. They've praised God. It's, it's really a, a full day of activity. And then they close this time out with this formal agreement, this formal commitment. And so this chapter, it reflects principles of membership in the covenant community. And while it's not identical to the practice of our church and church membership, we're not going to see every little component that's identical or parallel. But I do believe that the general equity of it that's contained in the judicial laws of the Old Covenant demand adherence today. That's language you find in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, section 4, this general equity or universal principles of justice. You can find them in this passage, and they apply today. So whatever is grounded in the Old Covenant, in the moral law, that's not specific to the nation of Israel, is applicable to us and our neighbors even now. We would say the moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, is perpetual and binding upon all. And so we'll, we'll look at some of these principles this morning. We'll really take it in two parts. So we'll just look at the, the first part this morning and we'll look at the, next, uh, the rest of it next week. But since it's appropriate to confess our, our own repeated rebellion, likewise, it's appropriate to respond with our own renewed commitment to God's revealed will. This is something we should regularly participate in. And I believe it's something that we do as we gather, especially as we culminate the worship service in that covenant renewal ceremony that we call the Lord's Supper. So church membership is one way of committing ourselves to that practice. Right? It's, it's, it's an acknowledgement that we haven't progressed beyond the repeated rebellion of our ancestors. We haven't arrived. We haven't gotten to where we've, we've figured it out now. We don't, we don't commit the same sins. We don't commit the same errors, right? We need accountability because we have a tendency to veer away from God's moral prescription. So that's what we'll consider this morning. Let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and even the passages that bring that sense of conviction into our hearts where we recognize, Lord, we... We do have the same patterns, the same fallen tendencies of our ancestors, even our immediate parents. But going back generations, we see our same tendencies, and in many ways we can become even more corrupt. And so, Lord, we need your mercy, we need your grace, and we recognize that one of your means of grace is the gift of this community that you've provided to equip us to edify us and encourage us and strengthen us. And Lord, that's why we're here. We need to be comforted by the truth of your gospel. As much as we need to be convicted, Lord, we need to rest in the truth of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And so we need the reminder of your gracious provision this morning. And so help us, Lord, to focus our minds, our hearts upon your word now, 
It's so easy to let our minds wander, to be distracted. Lord, um, we do that even in our praying. Uh, And as we begin to read, and as we begin to sit under the preaching, there's so many things that will flood into our minds and potentially derail our focus. And so, Lord, we want your word to be the center of our attention now, and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth and soften our hearts to respond to it in obedience. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, read with me Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 31. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Saraiah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattish, Shebaniah, Malak, Haram, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Barak, Meshulam, Abijah, Mejamin, sorry, this one always gets me. Meaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests and the Levites. Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui, of the sons of Hinnadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shabaniah, Hodiah, Kalida, Peleah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zachar, Sherebiah, Shabaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Perosh, Pehath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunai, Asgad, Bibai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Atzer, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bizai, Hereph, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpesh, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashab, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabna, Hashabna, Maaseah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Malak, Haram, Bana. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Amen. This is God's holy word. So this first section that I want to consider is is this idea that church membership reveals a commitment to adopt God's convictions. 
Adopt God's convictions, verses 1 through 29. The first verse contains the names of the civil leaders. You have Nehemiah and Zedekiah. And they're followed by a list of 21 priests, 1 through 8. I did the background check on each one of these, and so we're going to talk about them. No. We don't. Actually, we don't know hardly anything about them. They are listed several times, but we just don't know um, a whole lot to say. But it is important to kind of consider the categories that are listed here. You have 21 priests that are mentioned. Many of them uh, were mentioned, uh, sorry, many have wondered why there's no mention of Ezra among them. Fifteen of these names represent families, and Ezra belonged to the family of Sarea. It's the very first priestly family that's mentioned there. So he's included in that in that. Uh, sense in the in the tribal or family unit sense and all of this is consistent with the covenant operating in terms of family and tribal units and this is something we have come to expect from God's word and out of the 17 Levites listed in verses 9 through 13 six of them were readers who were mentioned in chapter 8 verse 7 so we know that these Levites assisted the priests in the, the religious responsibilities, the leadership of the people teaching and helping them to understand what Ezra was teaching back in chapter 8. Um, so we can assume that the other ones that we haven't heard of before are in, at some level, they have some re- religious uh, leadership responsibility among themselves. And they are listed here not as the, as the exhaustive list of Levites that are in this community, there's more. Because it'll say, and the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites. So this isn't an exhaustive list of priests that are present. It's not an exhaustive list of Levites present. These are representatives, right? These are people that that have been assigned to, to, to give their seal as a representation of the family unit or the tribe or the group that they're uh, representing. Right? So you have these uh, Levites. And then you finally have 44 chiefs mentioned by name in verses 14 through 27. Some of those names you find, or we already read as well in chapter 7, verses 8 through 25. And these may have been, it's purely speculative, but they may have been the same heads of households that had gathered with Ezra the day after they had listened to Ezra read um, God's word, that that long six-hour service where they had sat under the the reading of God's word. We, We read that the very next day, the heads of households gathered with Ezra to study God's word. And they were, they were so moved the previous day that they wanted to continue to study it and understand more about ways in which they had failed to keep God's law. And they, that's where we, we know that they end up following it up with the celebration of the Feast of Booths. So we've talked about that in, in previous sermons, but I do think that, that these chiefs are, are, are something akin to those heads of households. They're, they're people who, again, are representatives of larger larger groups of families, larger tribes or clans. So the total listed there is 84 names, and they contain this select number who are appointed to place their seal upon this agreement. These representatives sealed their names, but then what we read in verse 28 is that the rest of the people, everyone else who's gathered with them, are also recognizing themselves in this covenant. Right? They're not saying, well, you guys, you sign. I'm going to hold off on this one. Right? I, I'm not sure I'm ready. That's not what they're doing. No, they're, they're 
acknowledging their own involvement, right? The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, all who are committed to this community, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. So, again, this is not just the 84 names that are listed, but everyone else joins with, this, with this, these sealers in taking the curse and the oath upon themselves. So, no one who belonged to the covenant, to a covenant household, would have been excluded from the covenant community. Not only did all of them benefit from God's providential care over them, but they also recognized their own obligation to submit under the authority of God's word. And so to separate, to separate from pagan nations was to join the covenant community. They couldn't have one foot in that community and then one foot in the world. Or one foot in the church and one in the world. If, if you're not joined to the church, by default, you're joined to the world. And so there are, there's no biblical grounds for being in the covenant community without making a formal commitment to her. And that commitment will look differently. Not every church or every denomination practices membership in the same manner, but there should be some some principle of membership, some principle of commitment that is acknowledged and that is followed. Commitment to the covenant community begins with a replacement, right? We replace our personal convictions, which have been informed by our sinful nature, the families we grew up in, the community in which we reside, the corrupt cultural air that we breathe, all of that impacts our convictions. And so we have to replace those with the convictions of God's revealed will. We replace our inhibitions to offend man with inhibitions to offend God, right? We, we, we change from being fearful of man to being fearful of God. He becomes the, the one who dictates how we act and what we do. That being said, I do get the reluctance of many to take that step of faith, right? That you are taking a curse and an oath upon yourself. And in, our, in our practice, we have five vows that you're committing to. And so it's, it's not something that should be taken lightly. And the curse here in Nehemiah was illustrated back, if you look back with me at Nehemiah chapter, um, chapter 5, verse 13. Remember, there they, we saw that they had oppressed the poor. They had used the needs of, of those who were, who were already uh, struggling to make ends meet. They used that to, to then give them loans that they couldn't repay to ultimately end up enslaving one another. And so you had this mess in the community. And so they commit themselves to canceling those debts and to 
um, reconciling with one another. And it says here, Nehemiah, after hearing their commitment, after hearing their promise to do this, he says, I shook out the fold of my garment. And this is probably something like a pocket in his garment. You know, there's a fold where you could have kept belongings. And so he shakes it out, emptying it. And that's what it says. So shake out every, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise so may he be shaken out and emptied in other words the blessings that you've enjoyed may may they be gone may they be taken away from you if you do not uphold your part of this agreement this promise to cancel the debts of your brethren so ultimately, right, we recognize that this is, this is not a light matter. This is especially in, our, in a culture where, where you know, we, we shy away from making these kind of commitments. Maybe we laugh at those who, who sign up for Gym Pact and, and want to, you know, sacrifice a, some financial, um, you know, co- uh, cost to, to their commitment, who, who, who want that motivation, in some ways, we, we've, we think we're better than that. But this is ultimately the trade-off in a, in a church, in a commitment to the church is worth it, right? We lose the enjoyment of temporary and fleeting pleasures of sin, as we read in Hebrews 11.25, and in return, we gain the enjoyment of eternal and heavenly reward. Now, I'm not suggesting that, that the membership itself is equated with the reward. That somehow what gets you into heaven is your name on that roll. That's not the case. It's, it's, it's your faith in Jesus Christ. But one of the ways we show that, one of the ways we express that, in our commitment to him is through membership. It's through our commitment to the covenant community. One of my favorite sermons is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by Thomas Chalmers. He says this, To obliterate all our present affections by simply expunging them, and so as to leave the seat of them unoccupied, would be to destroy the old character and to substitute no new character in its place. Right? It's, uh, we think, well, that's a desire I want to get rid of. I want to I mortify that desire. So I'll just remove it from its seat there it'll just be an empty seat he says when they take their departure upon the ingress of other visitors when they resign their sway to the power and the predominance of new affections when abandoning the heart to solitude they merely give place to a successor who turns it into as busy a residence of desire and interest and expectation as before There is nothing in all this to thwart or to overbear any of the laws of our sentient nature. And we see how in fullest accordance with the mechanism of the heart, a great moral revolution may be made to take place upon it. If you want to remove a desire that is unwanted, it's just going to be replaced with another unwanted desire. If you don't intentionally replace it with something that is superior, 
right, with a joy that is far superior than any fleeting pleasure of sin or any pleasure that this world has to offer. See, Jesus in his humanity perfectly adopted and adhered to God's convictions. There was no hesitation or confusion regarding who he was committed to follow. He obeyed God's law, and through our union with Christ, our desires are transformed. And we read from one degree of glory to the next. We begin to be transformed. So God's convictions They don't change even though the specific commandments and the administration of those principles might um, might change in different dispensations or different eras of time. But the principles are perpetual. And so those convictions have been fulfilled and some of them abrogated by Christ. Right? Ceremonial law, for instance. And no one's advocating for bringing, up a, bringing a lamb with you to church so that we can sacrifice it in order to atone for your sins. We all recognize, if we are, if we are Christian, we all recognize that Christ was the final Passover lamb. And that's one example of the ceremonial law being abrogated. But we must take into account the reality of what Jesus has accomplished in order to know how to live in the new covenant. And that's, again, up for debate in a sense. How much of the old covenant law has been abrogated? And we, we recognize the ceremonial law. No one's really fighting about that. But what aspects of the ceremonial law affect the judicial laws that we find? For instance, if you broke the, the Sabbath in the old covenant, you would have been executed. Uh, not you would have been executed killed the new covenant seems like you would be there there's there's a different form of discipline that takes place Um, if you are found to be committing adultery in the old covenant there was another capital punishment but in the new covenant in second corinthians 5 we see excommunication is encouraged right you must cut them off from the community so that their sin cannot uh, cannot infect the entire community. So again, we're, there's some, some differences here, but the idea is that none of us think we can design our own convictions. We just, now that we know Jesus, we can, we can make up our own way to honor and glorify him. We still adhere to what scripture teaches us, so we must repent when we've adopted convictions that are contrary to scripture. And so this requires taking analysis. This requires taking some time to reflect. It's part of what we do, and it's very brief, but we just take a few moments before we take the Lord's Supper to reflect upon the ways in which we've dishonored him. It's an opportunity for us to take analysis of, of our sinful habits, our routines, our patterns of living. Are we living in rebellion against him? Or do we acknowledge the ways in which we've fallen short? And are we once again falling at the foot of the cross, begging for the mercy and the grace of our Savior? Have you committed to train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? What does that look like in your home? 
Do you need to replace, possibly, commitments to certain TV shows so that you might engage in more frequent family worship? Have we committed to support the church in its worship and work? If you're a member here, that's the fourth vow. So how, how are we serving? Are we giving sacrificially to the work? We may need to replace spending habits in order to give a more appropriate offering. And I know that's not easy to hear. It's not easy for me to say. And you guys all think, yeah, I know that's all any pastor ever wants to talk about. No, I dread talking about finances. I don't know why we have two budget meetings every year for the congregation to attend. It's just to make me sweat and trust the Lord. But are we giving sacrificially? And we'll talk more about this next time because that's the focus. I want to give a whole sermon to it. No, <laughs> um, it, That's really the focus of the latter part is, is, is supporting the work of worship. <clears throat> well, there's enough to cover there that, uh, that we just won't get to it today. But we may need to develop new routines, new spending habits, in order to open up uh, the way in which we're supporting the work of the ministry. Uh, we may need to, to cut off from, from our commitment to other things so that we can serve more. I'm not, I'm not suggesting I know the answer for everyone, and some of you need to explore these things, but, but hopefully these are thoughts that, that you're, you're thinking through. If, if, what are the commitments that express in an outward sense your commitment to the proclamation of the gospel, to the furtherance of his kingdom in this community? So the sealed agreement goes on to speak of a few restrictions, and that's the second point I want to make. Church membership reveals an eagerness to accept God's restrictions. It's you know, almost um, an oxymoron, right? You, you don't think of an eagerness to accept restrictions, to put limits upon yourself, but that's really what they're doing here. <clears throat> they're agreeing, they're committing to restricting who their children marry, who they take as sons and daughters. In verse 30 it says, we will, get, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Marriage here is restricted to other covenant members. This has nothing to do with xenophobia or ethnocentrism. This was not a prohibition against biracial or even multicultural marriage. That's, that's, not, that's not what's being restricted here. In fact, the book of Ruth would not exist if that were the case. That Boaz, who himself was the son of Rahab, a converted prostitute from Jericho, enters into the covenant community, and then Boaz marries the Moabitess Ruth. Ruth bears Jesse, who was the father of David, which eventually leads to the birth of our Messiah, Jesus. So the, the problem was pluralistic marriage. What was being prohibited here was engaging in marriage to those outside the covenant community. 
those who were, it was uniting yourself to the false gods of your neighbors, right? That's, that's what was taking place here. Rahab and Ruth, they entered into the covenant community. They adopted Yahweh as their God. They began to serve him. They forsook their gods, the gods that they grew up with. But here, many of the households in Israel have simply joined in with their, their, these foreign gods. They've become a, they've practiced now pluralism in their home. And so Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon was a Semitic word for money. But it, it really serves as a variable that could be replaced with anything. You, could, you cannot serve God and X. Christianity makes exclusive demands upon our worship. And so the pinnacle of rebellion against that exclusivity is a willingness to marry, to enter into a covenant agreement with another God. Idolatry. Right? To, to marry another person who serves another God is, is, to, commit, is to be married to that same idolatry. The, the prophets frequently liken idolatry to harlotry because it turns the church into a brothel. And we go on, we can say again, 2 Corinthians 6 speaks of being, not being unequally yoked, which conveys uniting ourselves with outsiders of the covenant. So what happens then if a person comes to faith after getting married? Well, Paul tells them not to pursue divorce. That, that commitment in marriage is, is something you you continue to follow and you seek to invite the other partner in that marriage to take the same covenant commitment upon themselves the covenant of marriage shouldn't be undone without qualified reason there's only two that I know of that I have adopted. My understanding of scripture is that divorce is only allowed in cases of infidelity and abandonment. And I would include abuse in the category of abandonment. So all of this goes to show that marriage is restricted to the covenant community in both the Old and New Testament. It's, it's not, this isn't just an Old Testament practice. And we're not free to marry whomever we want, nor are we free to divorce just because the state allows a no-fault divorce. And we should be eager to accept God's restrictions, even if that complicates matters for us. And it certainly does, and we'll get back to this point later on in chapter 13 again. This really is a theme, this, uh, this challenge of marriage to foreign, uh, foreign people who continue to worship false gods. Well, and then we see in verse 31, and we'll conclude with this. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So here the, the primary prohibition assumed in the Sabbath is to refrain from work. That's the kind of, of rest that is to be enjoyed on the Sabbath. And it's, it's not inactivity, 
but rest from worldly employment. This naturally, naturally led some to, to kind of ask a follow-up question. Okay, what if I'm not working, but I purchase something from someone else who's working? Maybe someone who hasn't taken the same agreement. Would it be okay to purchase something from foreigners if the Sabbath was only commanded for Israel? Well, this verse shows that all commerce was restricted on the Sabbath. The, the marketplace was closed on Saturdays, technically from Friday evening until Saturday evening. And so foreigners were invited to, to come to sell their goods at any other time, except during the Sabbath. The Israelites could do their shopping any other time, except on the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was to be set apart. It was a day for rest and worship. And so the only work that was allowed was that which facilitated worship. Or, or as we'll, we see in the Gospels from the example of Jesus, works of necessity and mercy. So those are kind of the three categories where we see exceptions to the rule, where Jesus condoned acts of mercy um, and necessity of, of uh, they, you know, plucked grain and they threshed it in their hands and then ate it. And the Pharisees jumped on them. You're, you're out in the fields now. You're working. And they're saying, we've got to eat. Right? That's a necessity. Or an act of mercy if your neighbor's animal falls into a ditch. Are you just going to leave it there? You're going to get it out. Just because Jesus healed, heals someone on the Sabbath, that's an act of mercy. That's not a, a work. They're telling the guy, you know, come back on another day. <laughs> He'll heal you another day. Just not today. So it seems like Jesus in particular picked the Sabbath as a time to heal people. Right, so there, this goes on. This is followed up with the, the Sabbath rest for the land every seventh year. This is an example of entrusting our property to God's care, not worrying about the fields. Now, this is in an agrarian society. It meant loss of income, opportunity to get ahead. You think you na the neighbors are letting their land stay unplowed? It would include also canceling any remaining debts. Now, potentially here, this would have... You could interpret this as allowing for a pause on payments, like an exaction of that debt during that, that particular year. But as we saw in chapter 5, it seems to indicate more, much more likely a, a canceling of the debts altogether. All right, so how do we apply this particular one? Well, this is another one that's challenging and, and uh, gets people worked up. The Christian Sabbath. College students uh, wrote a satirical tract. I don't remember where I read this, but the title of it was, I believe in all nine of the Ten Commandments. They, happy to ignore the fourth one. Now, the first four commandments, they detail how to love God, which is given priority to the way we are to love others. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 19 that the commandments are morally binding, that the law of God is perpetual, the, the moral law is perpetual and binding. And so I, would, I just want to close with this summary of the, of the general principles of the fourth commandment that you can find in Exodus. 
you have two positive components. Remember the Sabbath day. That idea of remembering implies not forgetting, <laughs> right? As well as observing, obeying, and celebrating. It's sort of like what, what you do on an anniversary. What do you do? You celebrate. You remember. If you forget, you get in trouble. There's a penalty. And so you remember the Sabbath day. Devoting the time requires keeping your schedule free from other arrangements. And notice it's not the Sabbath morning or the Sabbath hour. It's the day. The entire day is booked for the Lord. We're to keep it holy. That means it's set apart. It's not common. Whether the context is private, whether the context is in your family or public, it should be a holy purpose. There should be something you're doing that day that is distinct from the other days. It's, it's a day not to be distracted by worldly cares. You set it apart. So those are the two positive components of the command, and the two negative are not to do any work. Again, as I mentioned, this is not inactivity. It's keeping the Sabbath holy, but that's not defined as, as sleep. Right? It's like if you, if, if, well, if it commands that, a, that it's a day of rest, then the one who sleeps the longest wins. Right? It's not a challenge there, but, but worship and service for God is going to involve energy. Um, possibly, Sunday, for, for some who are in, invested in the work of, of worship, are going to be more tired than any other day. On the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day. And it may even require a nap. So there's nothing wrong with that, with resting. If you're doing so to facilitate an ongoing commitment of that day for worship. Or for works of necessity and mercy. Again, and I, I'm not going to get into the details, but obviously you can't... You can't you can't give your whole fire department the day off. There needs to be someone who's going to put out the fire if it happens. Same thing with the police. Same thing with your hospitals. You need, you need places of mercy available to, to go. And then the last negative is not to employ others. This is where you, you get more pushback than others, right? We should not employ those inside or outside the covenant community. That's, that's the principle here. These, these foreigners are entering in and they're wanting, to make, they're wanting to set up their table and sell their goods to the covenant community. And maybe they're thinking, hey, no one else can sell from that community, so we'll come in and we'll take advantage of this day. We'll get ahead of them. No, you shouldn't employ those inside or outside the covenant community. As a, as a creation ordinance, the fourth commandment has universal application. We can talk about that another time if you have questions about it. But if you agree with the authors of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms, then the principles of Sabbath restrictions still apply today. The day has shifted from Saturday to Sunday. We would count that as one of the ceremonial aspects of the Sabbath. And so since the resurrection, we are still obligated to worship and rest, but now it's on Sunday. That means we should refrain from work that's not for the purpose of right, piety or worship or necessity or merciful in nature. 
And I'll close with this quote from Walter Chantry. The sense given by those who claim that Jesus removed the Sabbath institution is as follows. Since from the very time of creation, God made the Sabbath to be a blessing to all mankind, therefore the Son of Man will become Lord of this blessing to demolish it. Something to think about. Rather than demolish the Sabbath, I believe Christ's fulfillment of it enables us to keep it out of gratitude. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we, re we thank you that even though as we consider these various convictions and restrictions upon the covenant community in the Old Testament, we see parallels to the New Testament and even contemporary parallels. Examples of these commands that still apply to us. And Lord, maybe we, we immediately get defensive. We want to we defend ourselves. We want to explain why we've done the things we've done. But Lord, maybe we should just repent. And maybe we need to just take some time to acknowledge our rebellion in various areas. And Lord, recognizing once again that this is, this is not done without a view to your amazing grace. Without apprehending the mercy that you hold out to us in the gospel. Lord, that even though our repeated failures bring us a deep sense of conviction, we can be comforted. We can rest easy knowing that Christ fulfilled the law perfectly in our place and then he took the penalty of death and he bore your wrath on the cross and he shed his blood that we might be cleansed Lord it's in that hope that we want to respond with gratitude and faithfulness Lord because you're worthy to receive it. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, My Jesus, I Love Thee, hymn 496.